Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's big shift to electric vehicles gets another multi-billion dollar boost from the feds. Electric vehicles may be the future, but will this investment make them more affordable? We'll also get the latest on Ukraine and Russia from Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. And more than 15,000 residential construction workers are on strike over compensation and workers' rights. It's being called the biggest strike in the sector in 20 years. What are the repercussions? We'll get into that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, made a joint appearance in the Windsor plant to announce the uh, billion dollars in funding to help Stellantis retool its Canadian auto plants to make electric vehicles. Here we go again, right? Uh, the Prime Minister says the plants in Windsor and Brampton are going to be global leaders in EV manufacturing. It'll deliver for workers, it'll deliver for communities, it'll deliver for our economy, and it'll deliver for the environment. Not only are we growing a world-leading auto industry, creating hundreds of jobs and securing thousands more, we're keeping our air clean by building and driving more EVs here at home. So that was the announcement yesterday, one of many we've heard about EVs over the last little while. Uh, It's worth noting, by the way, that uh, later on this afternoon, uh, the Premier is going to visit the Lieutenant Governor here in Ontario and uh, dissolve uh, the legislature, which means we will be in election mode officially for the June 2nd vote that we've been talking about. To uh, give us some assessment of what's going on so far and promises made, pleased to welcome back to the program Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. And Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. All these announcements that we're making right now, if I didn't know better, I think we were, we were in the middle of an election, actually two elections, because yesterday was the first day for municipal voting too. Uh, but give us an assessment on what you've heard so far. This uh, it, uh, And the first thing I want to start off with here is, of course, is the the announcement yesterday about the billion dollars, which is it's good news. Anytime anybody's going to invest uh, in, in jobs creation, that's a good thing. But Stephen Del Duque, the Ontario Liberal leader, was the first to jump in on that and, and actually kind of slap his prime minister on the wrist, too, by saying, look, it, you're not supposed to be doing this. Uh, Doug Ford's campaigning here. He's not being uh, the premier. He's not governing. Uh, the prime minister dismissed that sort of thing. Uh, I guess this is pretty much the sort of sniping that we're going to see for the, I guess, the next four weeks anyway. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of that and and, and, and more uh, over the next uh, next. Uh several weeks uh, leading up to June 2nd for the big election day. Look, I think the, the premier, I've long heard about this, this deal is sort of like in the works and, and, and deals like this don't happen overnight, don't happen over a week or a month. It, it can take up to a year to, to happen. So uh, to ensure continuity for businesses to make their, their timely decision and, and whatnot, like it, it made sense and, and had to be done for, for both Ontario and the federal government to make the announcement on just based on the heels of uh, the, the writ dropping. It's it's interesting to see the dynamic here, though, isn't it? Uh, you know, you think, and, and I know oftentimes people uh, will make this mistake, uh, Ontario Liberals, same as federal Liberals. And that's not always the case, is it? No, it's not. And uh, look, I think the case and example, I will say, whenever there is, say, a uh, both parties in government at the same time, uh, they both have different priorities in how to address something, and you know they're 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 speaking to a different audience. Uh, any any premier of Ontario is speaking to an Ontario audience at only, whereas the federal government has to speak to everyone across the country. So you know the priorities of Alberta, priorities of Quebec, Newfoundland, those are not the priorities of Ontario. Uh, but you know Premier Doug Ford or whoever becomes the next premier. 
uh, has to speak to just Ontarians and what that means, right? So it's a completely different landscape. And 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 one of the best examples to say is whenever you talk about Canada health transfers, uh, it doesn't matter what party you're on because it gets it gets pretty messy in the discussion yeah. because the provincial governments always want more money with no strings attached. The federal government will give money but with strings attached, and it's never a fun discussion. What about that relationship though between Ford and Trudeau? Uh, Got to admit, I mean, when Ford was first uh, elected uh, four years ago now. Uh, it was a rather acrimonious relationship. I mean, he uh, he went after the prime minister a fair bit during that election campaign, uh, tried to sue them to get out of the uh, the carbon tax program, and, and lost a couple of times, on and on. But was, there have been occasions, though, where they seem to w- be working pretty well. How important is it for Ford to maintain a, a decent relationship with the prime minister in this campaign? You know, it's 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 honestly critical. Uh, this relation has been one of the most fascinating that I've watched uh, over the last few years. Um, you know, to your point, it was very much a polar opposite, take snipes at each other. In fact, in 2019, Justin Trudeau ran a, basically against Doug Ford and not Andrew Scheer. Yeah. Uh, and that was sort of the the crux of trying to, to get reelected then. And it worked for the, for the federal liberals. Uh, but this relationship has been unique because uh, the pandemic has sort of redefined relationships across the country. And, and in a time when the liberals don't have very many liberal provincial cousins in power, the only one right now being Newfoundland, they've had to kind of work work as much as they can with what they got. And Doug Ford has been a sort of that very close relationship. And, and, in, his, and in his side of things, whenever he's doing an announcement beside the federal liberals, his poll numbers go up because you know, Canadians and Ontarians want to see that our governments are working together, they're getting things done. We're not having this uh, political sniping at each other because it does anyone doesn't do anyone any good. Uh, and so it's it's productive. And for the federal liberals and for the prime minister, uh, he's found a reliable partner. You know, they are completely in, on this Stellantis announcement. They're completely aligned on automotive investment and manufacturing investment in the province. Uh, so they they work. They're completely and complete in uh, complete in sync. On, on investments on this and addressing the pandemic. And throughout this pandemic, Ontario is one of the ones that was more closely aligned with what the federal government was thinking on when it came to restriction, restrictions and doing what they needed to do to protect uh, protect people from the, from the virus. And, and I mean, love him or hate him, because, you know, we've, we've seen both, uh, I guess, um, emotions uh, about the prime minister from a number of voters across the country, but specifically in Ontario. Uh, the Liberals did pretty well in the last federal election here in Ontario, especially in the large urban centres. And and let's face it, I guess that's, you know, the, the political reality is Ford needs to, to have that relationship. I don't think you're going to see too many photo ops with Doug Ford and Pierre Polyev over the next few weeks. Uh, or any of the other can- candidates, I guess, for the conservative leadership right now. Uh, it's 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 politically astute, I guess, right now uh, for the Ford team to simply run on the record and run on the fact that, yeah, that, well, the, I know we're going to hear this a thousand times, they're getting the job done. That, that's really going to be the theme, I guess, of this campaign. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the Ontario PCs don't really need the federal conservatives. They're not going to be helpful, really. And then considering that they're in the midst of a, of a leadership race themselves at the federal level, uh, you know, it's you're going to be have to be careful with which leader candidate you're going to hit your wagon to. Now, the funny thing is, uh, of all the five of the six confirmed candidates that will be in the ballot are from Ontario, one of which is also disgraced uh, and kicked out from the Ontario PC's Roman Barber. So yeah. it's not uh, it's not going to be a, a clean situation. And and in fact, you know, Pierre Polliver is running as the Western candidate, like Western Canadian candidate from, from that side. So 
Uh, he's not really being trying to be the Ontario guy. So there's also the the ongoing feud between the Ford Conservatives and the Federal Conservatives because of how they've treated him uh, over the last four years, and particularly stemming from that in, uh, famous 2019 election where the Federal Conservatives had him put into a box so that he couldn't speak out ever at any point. So uh, there, there's not going to be, I would be shocked if we were to see uh, Federal Conservative leadership candidates you know, have a have a rally with Doug Ford himself, and and uh, they they want to keep that distance because they recognize that they need the relationship with the prime minister, who's going to be now in power to at least twenty twenty five, and and they have had a productive relationship. So you know, why risk it? And and uh, and I doubt, I don't think the the prime minister will really will be weighing too much into the Ontario election either, because again, there is that working relationship there. Uh, but, you know, things could change near the end. If if in the last week it's very clear that the Ontario Liberals will win, maybe you might see the Prime Minister come out for that uh, for, to help so help Stephen Del Duca. But those are considerations that are probably going to be made in a, as a game-time decision and not something preemptively as a strategy. Yeah, because as you mentioned to us before, whether or not they do it publicly, uh, politicians keep score, don't they? Uh, you know, look what you did to me. And, you know, Ford and, and, and Andrew Scheer had a rather acrimonious relationship uh, because Scheer blocked him out of that uh, that federal campaign. And, and you know, they, they may forgive, but they never forget, do they? No, they don't. And, and guess who Andrew Scheer is supporting very closely? It's Pierre Pulliver. So yeah. uh, to, for any chance for that to, to have a warmness to, to being collaborating on anything, I, I would I would not be... I would be surprised to see that at this point. Um, so, uh, you know, politicians don't forget very easily. They'll hold grudges. They'll do odd things sometimes at the detriment of them, themselves politically. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think there will be that same sort of um, unspoken agreement at this point between the federal liberals and the Ontario PCs to not take shots at each other during the election, similar to what Doug Ford uh, gave to, um, to the prime minister in the last federal election. I've got a couple of minutes left. I want to talk about well, the EV situation here, the, the announcement yesterday in Windsor. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of talk about that, of course, in the last six months or so, especially here in Ontario. Is this an issue that's resonating with voters, Mohammed? Do they really care about this? Uh, you know, they're, they're t I noticed even yesterday, Ford's comments seemed to be more about the job creation aspect than any environmental uh, advantage that EVs may bring along. But is, is this going to motivate people to go to the ballot box? You know, it may not necessarily uh, motivate as kind of the issue uh, for uh, for any voter, but it does make an impact in the communities that these automotive parts and, and automotive assembly plants exist. Uh, for a long time, we were seeing communities become rust belts because automotive investment was walking out the door. And this sort of solidifies not only the jobs that exist today, but to create some more tomorrow. And and in some of these communities are, are struggling with that. And so this hits the blue collar and white collar sort of type of jobs when we describe the, the differences there. And, um, you know, it's $13 billion from both the feds uh, and Ontario basically spent on, on EV production. And, and, and in fact, it's a great message to say that, look, we're now going to be at the forefront of automotive innovation and production so that we'll create the jobs because there was a time when we, the country was very much uh, passionate and connected with the automotive industry. We were one of the top top five producers in the world of, of cars. Uh, and we can definitely achieve that again with this EV and, uh, transition that's taking place. So I think it's a smart investments to be making from a policy and political perspective uh, for the long-term uh, stability and growth of the sector. 
Yet Stephen Del Duca, the Liberal leader, uh, didn't talk a whole lot about this. His uh, announcement or his promise yesterday of $1 transit fares uh, for everybody. Uh, it, it's a pretty big promise. That's going to be a, a huge expense if, in fact, he forms government and tries to put this on. But is, is that going to float? I mean, it, or is that really just a promise that's going to resonate in, maybe in the GTA, maybe in Ottawa, but not too many other places in Ontario? You know, it's uh, it's kind of like a, a multi prong issue. I mean, the, the the policy is 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 sound in the sense that right now municipalities, one of their biggest issues is that ridership has not returned even remotely close to what they had before the pandemic. Uh, they've all been modest recoveries, but for the most part, have not come back because people are feeling like uh, I'm not sure I want to take transit. Do I want to spend that much money? But also, you know, if people are working at home, this is sort of, you know, that, that return to work is sort of, this is, seems like an obstacle. Uh, this is a, a policy that's hopefully going to encourage more people, if the Ontario Liberals form government, to encourage them to get back into using transit. Uh, and if you've ever driven through the 401 at any point, it seems like there's more cars than there were before the pandemic because more people are just driving at, at this point. And with inflation going on, like, People need relief somewhere. And so this is a really much a, a re, the kind of classic retail politics, hit the pocketbooks of voters uh, to, to, to give them some relief so that they can get around where they need to, whether for work, school or pleasure. Uh, I think it's it's good policy and it goes across the country. So I'm sorry, across the province, you know, whether it's Ottawa or the GTA, but it could also be Kishimaraloo, London, Windsor. Uh, it could be some smaller communities as well that uh, transit usage is, is very much... Um, uh, critical to to surviving if certain segments of of the economy locally are are functioning and and not just sitting at home you know being able to work uh, work off a computer but they want to see people going out and about and such so I think it's it's a good policy to kind of encourage people to get back into it uh, it also includes money towards transit operating shortfalls that that municipalities are facing so you know if we want to see people utilize transit for what it is needed for uh, and try to get them back to the comfort zone that, that we're hoping um, in this kind of post-pandemic planning environment. I think this is a helpful policy. It it's, seems to be, I know it, it crossed purposes in some people's minds though, uh, you know, you got, as you just mentioned, you laid out a very solid uh, argument saying this is why we should be using public transit. And then, you know, the next day they're at another session making an announcement and say, buy a new car, buy a new car, uh, make it an EV. Uh, but, but uh, you know, that's up for the voters, I guess, to decide just which way they're going on this. Uh, Mohammed, always a, a pleasure uh, to have you on the program to try to sift through some of the stuff we're hearing from Queen's Park these days. Thanks so much for this. And uh, as we uh, get geared up, I guess, for the stretch of the election, we'll, I know we'll talk about a lot of this stuff again soon. Thanks for today, though. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to coming back. You betcha. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant for Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things are starting to heat up and, and drag on, of course, in Ukraine. It's just uh, gut-wrenching to watch some of the, the video we've seen over the last couple of days. The uh, attempted work, of course, in Mariupol, that uh, factory, to, to try to get people out of there. The evacuation has been held up and, uh, well, not been as effective as they would like. There's that element. Vladimir Putin, uh, as one story suggested yesterday, may now be ready to officially declare war against Ukraine, if not other countries at the same time. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I know that some people are reticent to say, it's not really a war. Yeah, it is. Of course it is. When one country invades another and starts you know, bombing the daylights out of them, that's a, it's a war. And as Karen Rebo reports, uh, Ukraine's ambassador designate to Canada 
uh, says that Russia must be held accountable for war crimes and sex crimes that troops are committing against Ukrainians, including children. Yulia Kovalev told MPs at a Commons Foreign Affairs Committee yesterday the list of war crimes Russia has committed since it invaded her country in late February is growing longer as each day passes. Willful killing of civilians, using prohibited weapons, sexual violence, including to children, torture, forcible deportation. She said Russia has kidnapped Ukrainian children and taken them to Russian-occupied territories and now Russia itself. Kovalev said while Ukraine is extremely grateful for all the help Canada has given in aid, military equipment and support, the coming weeks are crucial to Ukraine's defense and more is needed. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Which is very much, thank you, Karen, that's very much along the theme of, you know, are we doing enough at this end? From the humanitarian standpoint, I, I think the government has really stepped up here. But, you know, th- this is a war and, and they need help. They need assistance on this. I want to bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, good morning, Bill. As, as the calls come out again to say, and I guess we heard this the first week of, of the war, when Zelensky says, I need bullets, not a ride out. Uh, it's always been, look, at, we need your help militarily. Can Canada do much more than they're already doing? Canada is providing some hardware, four howitzers and some armored vehicles and a fairly uh, large drawdown uh, loan, one and a half billion. Canada has played a quiet but very important role earlier. Uh, We were there as part of Operation Unifier. Mm -hmm. We were helping train troops. There were 250 or so Canadians. The numbers are a little shrouded. But basically, we were helping prepare the Ukrainian army, in cooperation also with the United States and with the UK. And apparently we've trained 33,000 of those soldiers who are now battling battling Russians. And, and effectively, too. I mean, I think that's one of the surprises as we've seen the, uh, uh, the, the way that they, they, the Ukrainians have defended their country. The uh, clip we just ran here, Elliot, talked about war crimes uh, against uh, citizens, not against uh, soldiers or armies, even among children. Uh, as horrific as that sounds and as horrific as it is, uh, it's not uncommon in war, is it? There are laws of war, and this, what we're hearing now exceeds those. That's why we're talking about possible war crimes trials. The laws of war do not permit the alleged, as, as we hear, the bombing of a children's hospital or other hospitals or sanctuaries where children were clearly marked and civilians were clearly marked to be hiding. The destruction that we see on the screens, particularly in Mariupol, but elsewhere, that could be considered part of normal war. But what's normal about war when a large country attacks its neighbor for no reason whatsoever? There clearly are going to be, uh, in fact, evidence is being gathered for war crimes, crimes against humanity, but also uh, aggression, which is a chargeable offense under, under international law. The question of genocide is raised I'm a little concerned about that because it's harder to prove, but also it also raises the possibility, Bill, that if you can't prove genocide, therefore it isn't important. Well, we've seen what's going on there and what's going on by Russia is an attempt to basically replicate what they did in Syria, help demoralize the civilian population, degrade the opposition's morale, but also their forces. There's no doubt whatsoever that what's going on right now in Ukraine will come under legal scrutiny, never mind the question of, you know, normally this happens in war anyway, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I, and I don't think there's any intention to be dismissive of it. It's, it's horrific, and, and uh, it's it's just downright you know, tragic when we see what's happening and we hear some of the stories and and the attempts, uh, as you say, for the evacuation of Mariupol. And, and, and you know, interesting aspect of that, too, is you know, many of the people that are in there right now are afraid to get onto buses because the last time they, they saw some of this happening, they were taken to Russia. Uh, and they yes. don't want that happening. That's that's akin to kidnapping in situations like that. But it, it, it follows Putin's theme, doesn't it, Elliot? That these are all Russians anyway. You know, even the Ukrainians who live there are, are under our, our guys, under our, our umbrella. Uh, he's been consistent on that. And I guess that strikes the fear of God into them that, okay, we can't have anything to do with this. The numbers I've seen are now closing into a million people who have been forcibly removed from Ukraine and into Russia, perhaps as future bargaining chips. If they really care about Russians, why are they bombing randomly, strafing randomly, shelling randomly, and sending their troops to kill people in the exact reason, region, which is the most Russian-speaking of the entire area? I don't think that uh, the Russians now are going to be welcomed with open arms and with flowers, given what they're doing. There's a Canadian who moved to the U.S. and became ambassador from the U.S. to uh, Ukraine. Maria, I think, Jovanovich, and she said, if you go by this logic, we speak America, we speak English in America, she's an American citizen now, does that mean we're now British, and that Britain has a control, uh, a claim on us? And in 2014, a professor in the University of Chicago, uh, after the taking over of Crimea and the two partial uh, parts of the uh, Donbass, uh, Donbass, which now they're now reaching, said, if you go by the logic, you have to protect your speakers, then east side of Chicago has to be protected by Poland. So you can't go by language and as using, using that as an excuse. Uh, the idea that these were oppressed peoples under the yoke of Nazism is a core tenant of what the Russian message is to their own population. There's no reason for us to accept it. But it's, it, it, it is, from the last reports I've seen, it is winning in Russia. Uh, the, you know, the citizenry they talk to in, in Russia and other cities are still supportive of Putin, in notwithstanding, the, you know, the, the grief that they're all undertaking right now and because of the, the sanctions that are being put on them. You know, we think we've got inflation here. It's, it's out of control, of course, over there. And the economic numbers, I think you mentioned this to us the last time you were on with us, uh, don't point to a recession in Russia. It's, it's a downright depression there right now. Yet they still follow their leader and they still support their leader. Let's talk about blockades. There's an information sure. blockade. Uh, which prevents the people of Russia from understanding or hearing what's going on. No doubt uh, the old excuse, you know, why, why did Putin do what he's doing? And we're all speculating on that. And one is that whenever he's in trouble at home, he had just attacked somebody. So maybe that's part of what we're hearing. But the sanctions are just now starting to bite. Uh, they are by no means in effect yet. And some of them, you know, you won't be able to go to McDonald's. By the way, as a footnote, McDonald's in Russia was opened up by the Canadian <laughs> branch of McDonald's. A very colorful story there. But mm -hmm. the, um, the whole question of blockade comes up also in regard to Odessa. And uh, the Mariupol is important because it's a port. What the Russians are trying to do is to deprive Ukraine of having any outlets to the, to the ocean. The, their exports cannot get out right now, even though the sinking of the Moskva, the flagship of the uh, Russian Navy forced them to go farther out, a great morale builder, but the blockade of, of, of Odessa is continuing and now the shelling is going on there. The Russians are attempting 
if they can't conquer all of Ukraine immediately, and I think that's still their long-term goal, they will dismember the state even further, and they will turn it into a rump state by consolidating their hold on the east, moving down through Mariupol, but uh, eventually moving to Odessa and up into Moldova, a narrow strip of land there that they have already taken control of. So what we are seeing in front of us is a major attempt to use the full brutality tested out in Syria. I think we mentioned earlier, you know, welcome to our world, ruefully the Syrians would say, and Aleppo, welcome to our world indeed. Use the full technique of conquest tried out there in order to basically remove Ukraine as a factor uh, geopolitically and increase Russia's hold on the neighboring territory. So they would change the bio geopolitics of the entire European front and the theater of operations if they can conquer and occupy Ukraine. How far is he willing to go, Elliot? I, I mean, it's speculative at this stage. I understand that. But yeah, I mean, history teaches us lessons here. You know, I mean, when, you know, when Hitler decided to start moving into Austria and they said, okay, he, that's all he's going to do. Okay, we'll agree to that. And we'll just back. And of course, and then we know what started with the European war. I, I, you mentioned some of the members of the former USSR, of course, that are independent right now that he basically wants to take over. And President Zelensky made those comments. As a matter of fact, uh, Jan Psaki at the White House the other day uh, during the press briefing says they have intelligence uh, that suggests that, uh, that Putin wants to take over, in, in, as you said, into other states and other territories right now that were once part of the, uh, the USSR. Uh, how emboldened do you think he is right now? Both sides right now, that is the Western alliance, and it isn't only Western, by the way, we, there was just a very important meeting held of defense ministers and others under the leadership of the U.S., and 43 countries showed up, and that included countries in Asia and Africa. So the, uh, th there is a broad level of support under U.S. leadership, and they plan to keep that contact group going. They want to institutionalize it as a mechanism. The how far will he go question, of course, is very pertinent because before the, he went in, he was already bragging about the new weapons, nuclear-capable weapons, that Russia now has, making them, in his words, invincible. And repeatedly, Russia has raised the nuclear specter. Would he go as far as some kind of a nuclear, a tactical nuclear strike? And if so, what would happen? If it's entirely within Ukrainian space, or in the sea, Azov or Black Sea, next to it, as a demonstration, what would the West do in that case? And the answer seems to be, that the West would see any use of nuclear weapons uh, in any uh, fashion as a red line that, that, that cannot be crossed. The Reagan-Gorbachev statement, when they signed an agreement after, with the fall of the Soviet Union imminent, was that a nuclear war cannot be won, so a nuclear war cannot be fought. It's not at all clear that Mr. Putin adheres to that philosophy. The other accusation I'm sure you saw yesterday, again from Putin, as he was addressing uh, some of his uh, followers, I show, maybe that's the term we should use, uh, he accused the Biden administration of fighting a proxy war. And, and I know that's part of the message he's been giving to, to the Russian people, is that we're really at war with the United States. So, you know, it's, 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 it's on Ukraine soil, but it's, it's the Biden administration and it's the Americans uh, through their weaponry and, and their support that we're really fighting here. 
I don't know that too many people are going to, you know, embrace that on outside of, of Russia right now. But it does, I, I guess, pretty much strengthen his argument within the Russian uh, state itself that uh, that you know this is really us against them. I mean, this is this is Cold War part, Chapter Two, isn't it? It's also paranoia, uh, Chapter yeah. One. This has been perhaps his view all along that the West is running uh, a whole operation against us. Uh, you mentioned uh, World War Two. In this regard, I think we should remind ourselves that the first plan, Plan A by the Russians was to go in and commit a blitzkrieg to take out the government, put in a puppet government and an Anschluss and then merge uh, Ukraine into what uh, Russia says is, you know, Ukraine's, Ukraine's an illegitimate state. It's not a real state. It's really uh, Russia. So we'll just merge it in with what we already have. You know, we'll make Ukraine part of Russia officially, which, as I say, would not only eliminate Ukraine, but change the geopolitics of the region and, and the world. Plan A did not work, but the whole vocabulary, and we should come back to that, was that the two goals stated by Mr. Putin at the start was he was going to demilitarize Ukraine, that is, they can never join NATO, and denazify it. And that means decapitate the government, take over the government, and replace it because it's actually a Nazi government. And Mr. Lavrov has just repeated horrific, horrific things. Uh, which puts him in, among other things, puts Russia in, uh, in conflict directly with Israel, which is something neither side wants because they have interest together in Syria. In any event, what we have is Mr. Lavrov saying, this is a proxy war. It's one thing I sort of agree with him on, it's, uh, and, and that the West, the NATO, will fight to the last Ukrainian. We have to remind ourselves that all of the heavy armaments, and we now are in a whole different theater of operation, in terms of supply of weaponry, uh, much, much uh, enhanced, but still there's not a no-fly zone. So the West is ratcheting up what it's trying to get in, but it's way too late for Mariupol, among other places. So we'll have to see if um, the willingness to fight to the last Ukrainian, as Mr. Lavrov puts it, uh, is sadly uh, true. Ukraine is the only, the only boots on the ground in Ukraine are Ukrainian boots, and that's how it's going to stay. Can that really outlast the Russian onslaught, which is coming? I got about two minutes, but I got to ask you about a comment from uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie uh, when she appeared before the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, uh, talking about uh, bringing back uh, the, the, the diplomats to the Canadian embassy in Ukraine. And uh, we're told that the UK, France, Italy, and even the Americans are considering similar moves. It's not business as usual, even from an economic standpoint, as, as you've described to us, Elliot. Uh, is a move like that symbolic to, to show supporters? Is, is there another rationale and another purpose for it? It makes them hostages in a sense. It does yeah. show international support. Uh, all of the visitors that are going there shows that you know Ukraine is not standing alone. But every time you, you know, we had Nancy Pelosi there, the third in line for the <laughs> American presidency, every time you go there, given the indiscriminate shelling or the random shelling or the deliberately random shelling uh, by Russia, if we, a lot, number of embassies actually do go back in, it may deter Russia from actually randomly shelling the capital city. It won't change the war effort, but it will change the, the reckoning about the capital city itself. And therefore, President Zelensky's personal health, uh, keeping in mind that assassinating him clearly was on the agenda and still is for Russia. Well, as you say, things are changing by the hour over there. And, uh, it, well, 
we'll just see what the involvement is in the next move for NATO as well. Elliot, always a pleasure to have you on here as we continue to uh, monitor what's happening over there. And of course, the implications are, are global, as uh, we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll get into that in our next discussion. Thanks again for this. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. You're very welcome, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something that uh, we need to be talking about here, there's been a lot of discussion over the last uh, couple of months, especially about housing, affordable housing, uh, lack of supply. Uh, You know, we need more product out there. We've heard from Realtors Association. We've heard from economists about this. Well, there's a problem. Uh, Right now, 15,000 residential construction workers are on strike over wages amid rising inflation. And it's a concern. Uh, This doesn't happen very often. Uh, And there's a concern about the impact this is going to have right now. Uh, I want to bring uh, Richard Lyle into the conversation. Richard is the president of the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Uh, Richard, a pleasure to have you back on the program. I wish it was under better circumstances, though. I agree, Bill, but it is what it is. (laughs) What's going on? Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So what's going on? Uh, Well, you know, uh, we do our bargaining every three years, and there's just over 30 different sets of negotiations going on with respect to the residential sector. There's others in other sectors of construction, uh, and they're complicated. They've been going on for months. Uh, you know, these are difficult times. Of course, I don't have to tell you that, you know, our industry was the first industry to come up with a safety protocol for ResCon. We were convinced we could work through it, and we did, and it was a great job done by all. Uh, in the industry. And, uh, you know, uh, we've had supply chain problems. We've had, you know, we've had to sacrifice certain productivity to, to, to be able to maintain production because housing is a need and we do have a crisis. And um, uh, so, you know, bargaining's been difficult and we got a difficult recovery facing us. So, you know, the industry's got to be mindful about being able to uh, maintain sustainability as much as we can uh, in these difficult times. Now, uh, with respect to the uh, strike activity, yes, there are six strikes on. There might be a few more that could start up. We have had eight settlements and we've got about 10 tentative deals done. And there were three arbitrations that uh, came out late yesterday. So we think we've got a bit of a pattern there and we're always hopeful because, you know, at the end of the day, nobody really wants a strike. And, uh, and there is money on the table here. This isn't about, uh, you know, builders or contractors trying to chisel our fine skilled trades. Uh, uh, but, you know, we do have to be mindful of where we're coming from and where we need to go. And, you know, the economic forecasts right now are, I don't have to tell you, quite shaky. Absolutely, they are. I know that some, I guess not all, but some of these workers, of course, uh, were deemed to be uh, essential workers and they worked through the pandemic. Uh, under great duress, obviously, because of what we were all experiencing in these last couple of years. Uh, yes. What's the tone of the discussions, the negotiations right now? Are they Is it antagonistic or are they just saying, look, it, we're close, let's see what we can do here? Well, uh, you know, the ones that are settled are settled. The tentative agreements are typically uh, uh, recommended by both sides. So that's more than half so far, if you add those up. Obviously, where you have a strike, something went wrong. Uh, and, um, you know, it could be a, a matter of uh, unrealistic expectations, uh, personality problems or whatever else like that. Things can happen. And um, so in those areas, uh, there's no discussions going on right now, but then they just started. So typically you don't get a quick turnaround and back to the table. But we are hopeful that with uh, 
uh, with time and hopefully not too much time uh, that those discussions and negotiations will resume. Um, because as time goes on, you know, the delays uh, become uh, more extended and that's not good for anyone. Uh, most particularly new home buyers, renters and people waiting mm -hmm. for social housing, because, of course, our industry builds everything. Right. Absolutely. You, you mentioned just a second ago, supply chain. How impactful is that right now? I mean, I, I well, I guess it was a year and a half or so ago. Uh, it hit us all right between the eyes. You know, people you know wanted to build decks. It was no lumber. Right? You couldn't get it. Oh, because, yeah. And then, and, you know, then they finally ramped up production again. But, of course, you know, then uh, there, there, there still wasn't enough supply. Uh, is, is that a concern going forward? I mean, if you settled everything, Richard, they all said, okay, we're going back to work on Friday. Do you have enough product to build these these many, many projects that you're involved in? You know, Bill, I'm amazed at how well the industry's done to juggle these issues because those supply chain problems have been ongoing. Uh, and, you know, just in the last year alone, our construction material costs have gone up 30%. So, you know, when you see the prices of the product going up, it's, you know, that's that's part of it, right? So it's been tough and continued to be tough. And of course, we had that really perverse COVID effect where, Demand for housing, uh, contrary, remember the CMHC said it was going to get cut in half? Well, it, yeah. it went up 25% instead, and that's a huge jump to take. So, you know, we're dealing with a bit of what I call the pig and the python right now. You know, we've got, uh, and look, we want the starts. There's no question about that. We would like to eventually find our way to maintaining this level of output, given our you know, deficit in supply that we've got and how many people are actually really suffering in the province uh, without new housing. And we're the number one industry in the province too. I mean, we generate a lot of taxes and we're a very well-paying industry. We've been doing a lot of work advertising that fact and trying to uh, get young people more interested in the skilled trades and women and so on. You know, we've got a lot of challenges though. So uh, we have to be mindful of all these things. And I expect that the supply chain issues will eventually get sorted out and we've already seen some changes there but you know commodity markets uh, continue to be roiled with uh, global developments too you know we got a bit hit by that horrible tragedy that's happening in the ukraine uh it's affecting markets all over the place so it's uh, these are tough times tough times I, I just want listeners to understand the, the you know the the, the picture here and the the structure in which you have to operate, I guess, Richard, you know, we say, hell yeah, the residential construction workers, but there are about 30 different contracts, I guess, that have to be negotiated. And and as you say, some have been settled already, which is good news. But some of the ones that haven't can be holding a production, can't they? I mean, you know, anybody who's had a house built knows that, you know, you're 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 relying on the trades to show up for this you know we need the electricians we need the the you know the framers etc and if one group's there everybody else is just sitting well we can't do our job until this, this one gets done so there's a, a kind of a domino effect here isn't there absolutely that's an astute observation bill there is a domino effect and some areas are you know a little more serious than others but that's why we have the system of bargaining that we have and we have a six-week strike lockout period to actually prevent things getting kind of crazy because uh, long ago that's exactly what happened and you know the entire industry woke up and said we kind of come up with a better system so i you know we do have a very good system in place it's been operating for 20 years but you know we're facing some extraordinary challenges this time around uh, but i'm 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 confident uh, we will get through this 
and uh, people will see their way to uh, reaching uh, settlements because, you know, there is money on the table and it's good money. Uh, you know, our industry doesn't, uh, isn't, uh, you know, doesn't cheap out on stuff like that. We respect our skilled trades. And again, you know, I mean, the job the industry did through COVID was remarkable. We didn't suffer. I mean, you know, there was obviously challenges to that. But, uh, you know, we didn't suffer some of the uh, things that happened, like in the service sector and the entertainment industry, where people were really hurt because they didn't have jobs. Right. So uh, and our performance through COVID was uh, extraordinary. Uh, but we were you know, we were we were confident we could do that because we 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 are used to dealing with hazardous materials and masks and things like that. And a lot of our work is. Uh, is uh, quite, um, you know, spaced out, let me put it that way. And then the areas that aren't, we, we had to come up with protocols where we limited people on hoists and stuff like that. And while that affected, you know, our productivity, uh, it was necessary to ensure uh, that, uh, you know, our, our teams remained safe. Well, you and I had those conversations in the early days of the pandemic, didn't we? I mean, when, right. basically because we didn't know a lot of stuff. I mean, some workers were afraid to go to a site. Uh, others said, you know, that, that's holding things up. And I mean, you, you, you had to learn as you were going along, didn't you? Yeah, it was tough. But again, we came up with the first safety protocol of any industry that became the model that was adopted by other industries. And we did that within a week of uh, COVID really, you know, it, the proverbial hitting the fan. So it was a, a quick turnaround. Uh, but there were difficult times early on. There's no doubt about that. Um, but you know, I'm proud of the industry and everybody that works in it. They did a remarkable job and, uh, you know, we, and we have a special role to play in the province because housing is a need. It's not something that's uh, kind of one of those optional extras in life. You know, you got to have shelter and, uh, we have an overriding responsibility to the public at large to produce high quality, good housing. And, uh, and hopefully if we can make some other changes with respect to our systemic barriers to housing supply, we'll be able to do even a better job going forward. Richard, is there a time sensitivity to this? I mean, I, mean, I, I you, you want to get it settled today, I get that. But as you mentioned, uh, there's money on the table from governments now uh, to increase supply. And uh, some of that stuff, though, is time sensitive. In other words, if you don't start these things by such and such a date, the money's off the table. Uh, so that could have an impact if this drags on. Uh, eligibility and then trying to play catch up, as you said, uh, with the supply chain problems, et cetera. Uh, the old adage, time is money, really comes into play here, doesn't it? <laughs> That's true. That's true. But, you know, we got to put things in perspective, uh, Bill. Uh, you know, last year in Canada, the in, the total residential industry was $167 billion of uh, production and output and renovation and everything else like that. It's a huge industry. So, relatively speaking, the amount of money that the government's putting into the industry is actually uh, quite uh, limited, and uh, and they can't replace the industry because 90% of housing in Canada is private sector. Uh, a lot of people don't really realize that. The, the thing we really need from government uh, more than anything else is to streamline and modernize our development and building approvals process and get rid of some of these really unnecessary barriers to new housing supply. And we've been working on that for years, you know, modernizing the system, digitizing it, and so on. And, uh, and of course, innovation, too, as well, is a big uh, part of the picture. Um, but, you know, putting all that aside, you know, strikes are unfortunate. Uh, 
Um, uh, and I, I'm not going to uh, criticize anybody in particular here, but these things can happen. And we're just hopeful that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, people will get uh, back, to, parties will get back to the table. Um, uh, you know, it's not going to happen, as I said this week, but uh, they get back to the table and uh, we can get the rest of the deals sewn up and, uh, and, and do our jobs in producing housing for uh, the people of Ontario. Well, and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, even the announcements we've heard over the last little while, you know, from premiers and prime ministers and others that, hey, you know, we're going to build so many houses. They're not going to build anything. And then none of them are going to swing a hammer. They, they may finance it, <laughs> uh, but it's up yeah. to the, the folks in your unions to be able to get these things up. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The entire industry, stem to stern. We've got, and it's a huge, we've got the design element. We've got the suppliers that uh, supply the industry and depend on the industry. And then, of course, we have our skill trades that are second to none uh, uh, that uh, actually, uh, you know, do the work on site and our management and supervisory people and quality can, you know, quality control, health and safety people, because health and safety is number one, Bill. And, uh, you know, it's a huge industry. Uh, not everything is shut down right now. Uh, so uh, that's good. And uh, I don't expect it obviously won't be because we do have some in some place and there, you know, there, there is money on the table. So, um, you know, and, 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 you know, our industry is a, you know, uh, pays well relative to other industries. And that's one of our calling cards for more getting more young people into the skilled trades. Uh, you understand, of course, uh, Richard, a lot of folks are, are looking at you and not just people who want to have a house built, but, you know, with inflation running the way it is right now and, and some concerns, let's face it, contracts, uh, you know, expire and people are going to say, look at, look at the inflation rate, look at the cost of living. I need more money. And uh, I, I know that's something you've probably heard around the table a lot yeah. uh, in the last couple of weeks and, and other uh, companies, other unions, and uh, are we going to be watching this too to see uh, just how this is going to be handled? Because I, I don't get oh. the sense inflation is going to go away anytime soon. Absolutely, Bill. And on, you know, on that note, the settlements I'm aware of have taken that inflation number into consideration. It's there, you know, it's covered. Uh, the, 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 the thing, though, with the economy and what might be coming down the pipe with higher uh, rates is that those inflation numbers and, and the forecasts right across the board are for inflation to come down next year and the year after. Uh, so, um, you know, we got to make sure that we are mindful of that. And, uh, and certainly, you know, the interest rate hikes are going to have a chilling effect to a certain degree on the market. So we have to be mindful of that. Now, the, the strange thing is because we haven't been producing enough housing, I think the market's still going to remain, uh, for new housing supply, it's still going to remain strong because it's been limited. Right. Um, so it's, uh, there's a number of variables here that uh, are quite unusual. As you said at the beginning, it is indeed a perfect storm, uh, but we've got to be very careful with this recovery and very careful with, uh, you know, the forward commitments that we make as an industry that we are careful. We don't, uh, you know, get it. We don't get caught in what the economists call a scissors effect, you know, uh, where costs are going up and, uh, you know, the product is not, uh, is uh, going down in value or at least maybe leveling off or somewhere in there. 
And we have to be very mindful of that because we want to we want to keep going. We need to keep going. We need the support. We all do. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be a key part of economic recovery going forward. Richard, I hope things work out uh, sooner than later. I know a lot of folks are very anxious about this, and I know you and your team, and, and I know even talking to the other side. I mean, they said, you know, we got to get this thing done and done soon. Uh, for yes. everybody's mutual benefit. So best of luck with that. And uh, we'll talk again, hopefully, uh, with some uh, successful bargaining a little bit down the road. I look forward to that, Bill. Hopefully, next time we'll talk, we'll have some good news. Hope so, too. Richard, take care. Richard Lyle, uh, president of the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Still a number of uh, portions of the uh, the home builders uh, that are still out on strike. But the, you know, let's face it, you know, the politicians can promise all they want and all the money they want. Uh, if you don't have people to build them, uh, it's not going to happen. So let's get this done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.